Hello, everyone. I'm Pastor Steve Hogg at First Baptist Church in Rock Hill. So excited you've decided to join us for this telecast. We're going to be talking about making a difference in the world by serving people and how Jesus set an example for us. So pay attention. God's going to encourage you and grow you. Today we're going to talk about being a servant. And, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a strong culture of serving to meet the needs of people in our country. In fact, uh, the government collects uh, data on the number of people who volunteer each year through uh, nonprofit institutions and organizations. And the numbers have been pretty consistent for several years, fluctuate a little bit, but generally speaking, somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of Americans volunteer regularly through a nonprofit entity. I wish it was higher. But uh, when you think about it, that's uh, that's a pretty strong, strong number. And um, curiously, do you do you know which age group tends to volunteer at the highest rate? What do you think? The highest rate are those between the ages of 35 and 44. It's like many things in life, our perceptions are not always accurate. Uh, who do you think volunteers more? at a higher rate, women or men? And don't be afraid just because you were wrong on the first one. Come on. Yeah, you're right, women, a little bit higher. And uh, the two activities that people tend to volunteer uh, more to do are fundraising, helping entities raise money. For instance, we host uh, uh, banquets uh, in, in this room every year for ministries in our community like the Crisis Pregnancy Center or... Uh, or uh, FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and people volunteer so that those entities can have funds to do the work that they do. The second most common activity people volunteer for through nonprofits is has to do with food, collecting food, distributing food, serving food to people who, who, who are hungry. Now, the government will not collect this data. What percentage of the people who volunteer are motivated by their faith. Some years ago, the government stopped collecting data about faith. Well, that kind of fits with where the culture is today, doesn't it? But we know from experience, because most of us volunteer with entities in this community, that there is a significant percentage of the people who volunteer through the various nonprofit organizations and institutions, a very significant percentage of them are people of faith. And the truth is, without people of faith, the percentage of volunteers in this country would go down dramatically. Now, that's not surprising. There's a reason for it. And the reason is that Jesus Christ teaches us, both with his words and example, to be involved in serving, right? I mean, he, he, he tells us to do that. Mark 10, 45, speaking of himself, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. And then uh, referring to us, his followers, he said in Matthew, the greatest among you shall be your what? So it's part of the DNA of Christ and followers of Christ that we find ways to serve. Now, we don't all do it in the same place, same way, at the same time. We have different passions and different interests and different gifts and different schedules and different seasons of life. So today, I want to talk about service about being a servant because as, as you're opening your bible to the book of philippians 
You'll notice these banners on the wall we've been referring to for the past few weeks. We have eight passions. These are our values. We, we say it's sort of like each of these is like a piece of a puzzle. You know, you have to put all the pieces in a puzzle together before the picture is complete and, and as, as beautiful as it can be. Your life as a Christian has these different parts, these different pieces, and each one's like a part of the, the puzzle. It all goes together. And when you develop these in your life, you're growing and maturing as a follower of Christ. You're going to look a certain way. It's going to impact your home. That's why one of our passions is Christ-centered home. Those relationships, spiritual conversations, prayer, intentional spiritual growth, spiritual friendships, and resource investment. But over here in the back corner is that banner for servanthood. Because one of the things that followers of Christ do is we serve. And I want you to, to look at this passage uh, from the perspective of being a servant because it describes for us Jesus, Jesus Christ. And, and, and before we read, let me, let me say this. When we think about serving, normally we think about what? Activities, actions, what we do. We serve. We, we serve by serving food. We serve by helping someone go to the doctor. We, we, we serve. And we, so when we think of servanthood, the first thing that tends to come to our mind is behavior, actions, what we do, activity. And I want to say to you that servanthood is more than what you do. In fact, you can do things, you can do acts of servant and not really be a servant in your heart. There is so much more to being a New Testament servant the way Jesus expects us to be than simply doing stuff. True servanthood is more than action. So look in Philippians chapter 2, starting with me at verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The Bible says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what attitude did Jesus have? Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. In verse 8, he being found in appearance as a man. Notice this. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what is, what is that passage teaching us? It's telling us that Jesus is God. He's divine. He's the Holy One. He had no beginning. He's the Eternal One. And so it says, even though He existed in the form of God, He's divine. He did not regard that as something to be grasped, to be held on to. And so when, when Jesus was born at Bethlehem that first Christmas, what happened was God stepped into this earth. We call it in, in theology the incarnation. And He did not give up His divinity, but He took on Himself humanity and so we say that jesus exists as fully god and fully man jesus is eternal now the humanity that he took on himself started at bethlehem and so he's the god man and rather than staying in the state that he had been he took upon himself the frailty of our humanity and like we could be sick, he could be sick. Like we could hurt, he could hurt. Like we will die, he died. And so rather than holding on to the status that was rightfully his, staying in the place that was his, he came to this world and took upon himself humanity with all of his frailties, with all of his pain. That in and of itself is an act of love, is it not? 
And then it says in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. All right, now once he's here, not only as God, but as man, he humbled himself. Let that sink in. He humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient. You see, people who struggle to be submissive struggle to obey God. Obedience is part of the evidence of humility. He humbled himself, becoming obedient. How obedient? To the very point of death. All the way to the cross and the pain that was a part of his crucifixion. Do you get the image of the kind of person he is? And so this passage begins by saying, you and I are to have within us the same attitude Jesus had. It's not simply a matter of what we do. It's a matter of how we think, how we view life, how we view ourselves. What is our attitude about all of these things? See, true servanthood starts not with your behavior, but with your mind. With your heart. It's your attitude. It's your emotions. It's your thought processes. It's your decision making. Shows itself in behavior and action. But that's not where it, where it begins. Jesus modeled servanthood. I, I don't know if you know this, but it's in the news this morning. There were two Christian churches in Egypt worshiping on Palm Sunday this morning that had bombs explode and several Christians were killed and many others were wounded. And there's been a rash of bombing of Christian churches in Egypt in recent years, one in December by uh, an extension of the Islamic State. And no one's claimed responsibility for these bombings yet, but it's pretty well a given it was Islamic terrorism. Now, why am I sharing that with you? Well, I want you to hear something because you won't hear this in many places, but, it's, but, it's, but I want you to hear this. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, in a single decade of his life, fought in eight major military battles. He led 18 military raids. He planned another 38 military operations that were carried out by those under his authority. And in battle, he was wounded twice. If you want to understand why Islam cannot totally eradicate that violent strain, it's because when it's part of your prophet and your founder, it's part of your DNA. Just the facts. And so Jesus, when he was arrested told Peter to put up his sword, those who live by it, die by it. Jesus, when he was crucified, the Scripture tells us, could have called thousands upon thousands of angels to rescue him from the cross, and yet he chose not to. And the Bible says that we are to have within us the attitude he had. I want us to look at three stories from the life of Jesus real quickly that illustrates the attitude of servanthood we're supposed to have as followers of Christ. The first one takes place when he's a little boy. The second one takes place when he began his public ministry. 
And the third one takes place when he was arrested the evening before his crucifixion. And so if you have your Bible, in Luke chapter 2, the story from when Jesus was a little boy. Um, Beginning in verse 41, the story tells us that Jesus' family, when he was 12 years old, took him and with others from Nazareth went went to Jerusalem for a feast to worship. And after being there several days, the caravan started home and uh, they didn't check on Jesus and he wasn't in the caravan. He was left behind in Jerusalem. Um, no, I've done it. Some of you have done it. You've, you've, you've walked off and forgotten somebody who was with you. Maybe not a lot, but you've done it. I've done it. They left Jesus. And uh, they, they start looking around the caravan. Nobody knows where he's at. They go back to Jerusalem and they search for him. And it takes them a long time to find him. And eventually they say, well, let's check out the temple. And when, they, when they, they get to the temple, they find Jesus. And I want you to notice in chapter 2 of Luke what it says about that experience in verse 49. They, in verse 48, they've said to him, we've been anxiously looking for you. And I can get that, a worried parent looking for their missing child. But in verse 49, Jesus said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's house, be in my father's house? Now, that tells us that Jesus had an understanding of who he was at 12 years old. There was a messianic awareness on the part of Christ at age 12. Verse 50, they, his parents, did not understand the statement. And I find it amazing that both Joseph and Mary had angels speak to them announcing the birth of Jesus, describing who he was. And here it is 12 years later. They don't understand who he is. But Jesus at age 12 knew who he was. Verse 51. And so he, Jesus, went down with them. And by the way, in the Bible, Jerusalem is always, you always go up to Jerusalem when you're going to Jerusalem, and you always go down when you leave Jerusalem because of its prominence in Jewish, Jewish faith, okay? doesn't matter what direction, topography, you always go up to and down from. So when you read that in Scripture, that, what, that is just referring to the importance of Jerusalem. And so he, he, he leaves Jerusalem in verse 51 with them and came to Nazareth, their home, their home and he, notice what, it, what does it say about him? He continued what? Are you all awake? You with me? He continued in what? In what? All right, now, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who even though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, took on humanity. And here's what, what is he? He knows who he is. He's the Messiah. His parents don't understand who he is. He gets it. He knows who he is. And yet he goes home with them and he does what? Demonstrates humility and subjection and servanthood. Now I could stop here and, and preach for a few minutes on family relationships, but that's not the subject of today's sermon, but it's there. He was Messiah, but he still submitted to his parents. Second story from the life of Jesus is found in the third chapter of Luke. It's when 
He's beginning his public ministry. And you'll remember there was a preacher named John the Baptist who was preaching and uh, a lot of people going out to listen to him and were confessing their sins and being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, it says that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That doesn't mean baptism washed away sin. What it means is it was a baptism of repentance. In other words, they were repenting of their sin. And because they repented of their sin, to symbolize that they were baptized, they, it, it just re- repentance washes away your sin, cleanses you when you turn from your sin. Baptism gives evidence of that as, a, as you come up out of the water. So that, it's, the, it's the picture of being washed bodily. It's the picture that, that you're washed clean of your sin when you repent there is no forgiveness without repentance you, you can get baptized a thousand times and go to hell there has to be repentance and john was preaching a baptism of repentance and so as the story continues in chapter three jesus shows up jesus shows up And in verse 21 of chapter 3, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Matthew tells us that that John argued with Jesus and said, I don't want to baptize you. I'm not worthy to baptize you. I need you to baptize me. See, here's the thing. Jesus had no need to be baptized. Jesus had no need to repent. Jesus had no need of forgiveness. The Bible tells us he's without sin. He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. There was nothing. He's he's the only person that never needed to repent, that never needed forgiveness. On a personal level, there was no reason for him to walk down into that river with John the Baptist and be baptized. There was no reason. He didn't need it. So why did he do it? He set an example for us because we all need it. Now think about that. He set an example for us. By doing something he personally did not need to do. Didn't benefit him. Benefited us. Have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And so here he is, he's sinless, but set an example for us by being baptized in a baptism of repentance. Do you get the the picture? He's divine, but he takes upon himself humanity. He's the Messiah, but he submits to his parents. He's sinless, but he's baptized anyway for us. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And the third story is when he was arrested. And so turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. They've observed the Lord's Supper the way we're going to in a few moments. And they leave the upper room making their way to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives, a place Jesus sometimes would retreat Two, for prayer and reflection, rest. Now remember in a few moments he's going to be arrested. That evening, 
He'll be spit on. He'll be slapped in the face. He'll be laughed at. He'll be deserted by the disciples, left alone. The following morning, he'll be beaten within an inch of his life by Roman soldiers using a whip. His scalp will be pierced by thorns. He'll be spit on again and hit in the face with a stick. He'll be made to carry a, a cross beam, a big piece of wood on his shoulders through a crowded street. He'll, he'll be laid on the ground and stretched out and spikes driven through both wrists and his feet. He'll hang between heaven and earth and all the sin, all the sin, not just of you and not just of me, but all the sin of all humanity of all time will be dumped on him and he who knew no sin, Scripture says, will become sin for us. And for the very first time in his existence, sin will touch him. And he will die. And when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, he knows all that. He knows every sordid detail of what is to come. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he's praying and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What cup? All the stuff I just said. That he was going to have to drink the cup of all the stuff that was going to happen to him. And he said, Father, if you're willing, if it's your will, remove this cup from me. If there's some way Steve Hogg, if there's some way you, whatever your name is, if there's some way humanity can be saved without me going through all of that, drinking that cup, dying on the cross, let it be. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to suffer physically, emotionally, spiritually. He didn't want to become sin. Do you think he was eager to have all that happen to himself? But notice his prayer. Yet, yet, not my will, not what I want. Boy, that's, a, that's not an easy prayer. Not what I want. Not what I want. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Not what I want. But yours, your will be done. Have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you get the picture of who he was and who he is? Verse 44, being in agony. 
Does that make it clear how he felt as he knelt to pray in Gethsemane? Being in agony. He was praying very what? Fervently, passionately. It was strong feelings. And his sweat became like drops of blood. He wasn't sweating because he'd just gotten through working out at the gym. He was sweating because he was doing battle with the forces of hell for your salvation. Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He knew God's will would be hard, require sacrifice, yet he did it. He obeyed it. Why? Why would Jesus do such a thing? Well, look around the room. Go ahead, look around the room. And every person you see, that's the reason why. After church today, when you go to a local restaurant to eat lunch or you go home and you pass your neighbors, every person you see, that's the reason why. Tomorrow morning when you get out of bed, take your shower and get ready for work, you look in the mirror to shave or fix your hair or put on your makeup, the person staring back at you, that's the reason why. Have this attitude in you which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even in his darkest hour, he showed love for others. Later in the story when they arrested Jesus, Peter, one of the disciples, pulled a sword out and swung it in defense of Jesus and cut off a man's ear. How did Jesus respond? Well, look at verse 51. Jesus answered and said, Stop. No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. One of the men who was arresting him so he could be crucified? And have this attitude in you, Scripture says, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, do you understand? And would you, would you say it with me? Do you understand this verse perhaps a little bit more? Would you say it with me? John three sixteen. God, come on church, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What was the reason God so what? Loved. You see, you, you, you can volunteer and you can serve and you can do good things for the wrong reason and with the wrong attitude. You can do it and hate it and resent it. You can do it for selfish reasons, for recognition, just because it makes you feel good, and it does, but that's not a good enough reason. You can do it to get ahead, to look good on your resume, to impress somebody. So you, you can serve and not love, but you can't love and never serve. Just can't. We serve people we know. 
We, we serve people we know, but we also serve people we don't know. It's like those men working on that house yesterday, so in two weeks or three weeks, the youth can paint it. Serving people we don't know, it's, it's most of the servolution projects that's on, on this sheet on the front and back, you'll, you'll be serving people you don't know. But that's okay because God knows them. And I hope you'll look that over and sign up. You can take it to the servolution table back here in the back afterward or you can go online and sign up and somebody will be in touch with you to give you more details and answer your questions but look it over and find a way to serve monisa's already told me what i'm doing (laughs) i was submissive (laughs) doesn't happen often but you know yeah i'm submissive let me wrap this up Two key lessons we learn from Jesus. You ready? I want you to write these down. These are important. Here's number one. Status does not control behavior. Wow. Think about that. Status does not control behavior. I mean, if anybody had status, it's Jesus. Number two. Your attitude and your heart. Your attitude and your heart need to control your behavior. Christian servanthood begins in here and in here. So, what is God saying to you? What is God asking of you this morning?